Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the new political concept of unfunded empathy. We try to establish whose side we are on because we do need to choose. And nuclear energy and breastfeeding. Is there a relationship between these two? Politically, yes, there is. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The political landscape after the May election is becoming a little bit clearer, with a couple of weeks of Parliament just completed, and all sides of politics are starting to work out exactly what their strategies are going to be over the next three years. Key battle lines and talking points are being pushed forward. There are new characters and new positions within the government and the Labor opposition. And it's just taking a little while to get used to the new voices and the new players in this new round of politics. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, he's not one of these new faces, but he has introduced new terminology to the political lexicon, the concept of unfunded empathy. Scott Morrison was all smiles during the election campaign, saying yes to virtually everything, drinking beer, shearing sheep and calling out all the winning numbers in bingo halls. But now the election has been won, he's turned to attack mode and dismissed all the concerns of those who wanted to raise the levels of the New Start allowance. Is this idea of unfunded empathy going to become an ongoing problem for the Prime Minister? I think it is because it's uh, unemployment is rising and more people are going to be reliant on New Start. Uh, to demonise people as dull bludgers becomes very dangerous. And even people who who are doing quite well will know people who um, aren't dull bludgers, who aren't rotting the system for $245 a week. And with the rise of social media, it's easier to get stories across of uh, people somehow on hundreds of thousand dollars a week rotting the system. And we there are, and we'll get back to them, but it's harder to keep those stories alive because the internet can be a very quick corrector. The New Start allowance, as you mentioned, it's only $245 a week. And it hasn't actually been raised in real terms since 1994. There have been calls across a broad coalition of business, the Australian Council of Social Services, NCOS as well, Labor, Liberal, Greens. This is going across the entire political spectrum. And it's to increase New Start by $75 a week. The cost to the overall budget each year would be $3 billion. Now, this compares with the annual $6 billion cost of the budget for the franking credits tax returns. And the franking credits policy was a big issue in the recent federal election. How about the government reforms the franking credit system, cuts back its generosity here by $3 billion per year so that people aren't losing out entirely, and uses that to fund a raise of $75 per week for New Start recipients. Everyone would be a winner. The franking credits is the issue that won't go away. There were suggestions that people had gone to Centrelink to ask for their franking credits, old age pensioners and things. Uh, and as we get a clearer understanding of what these are and how they're paid, they're becoming, I think, less popular for the government. My own suspicion is that the government just wants the whole issue to go away. They want to keep them and they hope that the narrative will move on to, or the, this, the discussion will move on to something else. 
I'm not quite sure that it will, particularly as things tighten up economically for people. It's a very small amount in the budget. $3 billion sounds like a lot of money, even for us on our uh, lavish wages here. $3 billion is a fair bit of money, but it's not really. I think defence costs $120 billion a year or something like that. I'm not here to argue how much we should and shouldn't spend on each department, but in terms of what percentage of the money we spend is, it's not actually that big. But it taps into a philosophical question of who deserves to live or who deserves to get government money and who doesn't. It was hard to guess the reasons behind the government's actions because for a while it looked like it was actually going to raise New Start. The reasons for not increasing New Start are that it was totally hell-bent on avoiding any spending that will affect its predicted $7 billion budget surplus. And their entire economic narrative in the future is based on keeping this small surplus. Now, we won't know if there has been a budget surplus for the 2019-20 fiscal year until September 2020. That's when the Treasury releases its figures. So that's one school of thought, that the government will not spend Mm. any money at all. Mm. It doesn't matter how worthy the cause is because it simply wants to prop up its economic story. Conversely, the thinking was that, yes, the government was going to raise Mm. Newstart by $75 per week. Even Barnaby Joyce jumped onto the bandwagon. But the idea was that if it was going to raise it by $75 a week, that there would be a number of strings attached. The main one being that an increase would be tied in to the wholesale introduction of the INJU welfare card. Now, that's a... That's a system that has been trialled, but it's been managed by a private company which has got strong linkages with the Liberal and the National parties. Yeah. Now, the Indu card, I think, is a terrible thing. It's currently being used in the uh, Northern Territory, I think, and it limits where you can shop. You can only use your card at particular shops. So they've cut out uh, alcohol shops uh, and they've cut out, I don't think you can use it at the tab and superficially you think oh this is a good thing it's helping people break the cycle of addiction and you know but people are adults what if you were celebrating a birthday and wanted to take a six pack to share with the other five people you can't do things like go to op shops and use it at op shops which to me sounds seems like the most stupid thing op shops are designed to help people on lower incomes buy necessities like clothing but you can't spend it there apparently you can only spend it at particular supermarkets what if you like the prices at another supermarket it's a failure of the capitalist system unless you own it and apparently it's worth about 200 million dollars a year you know and i think that's where it goes to and that brings us back to barnaby joyce i wonder how much of his sudden found empathy for the poor has less to do with actually thinking about what people on new start have to go through and a bit more to do with spreading the influence of the Indu card, owned in part at least by mining magnate Twiggy Forest. And as we all know, Barnaby Joyce is a Nationals MP. The Indu company has very strong connections with the Liberal Party and the National Party. Larry Anthony was a former National Party MP during the time of the Howard government, and he was a senior member of the Indu company as well. He, he did resign from the company in 2013, but his trust company, 
Ilalangi, it owns a substantial number of shares in the Inju Company. So we've got this preposterous situation of the possibility in the future of massive amounts of government welfare funding being managed by a private company. For each card that Inju issues, it is paid $4,000 by the government and up to $10,000 for certain types of cards. And I assume that there would be ongoing management costs as well into the future. Major financial institutions such as the Commonwealth Bank or, or Westpac, they'd go broke if it cost them this much to manage their accounts for their customers. Inju is a private company. It's managing and controlling welfare money and it's controlling who is the supplier of goods and services to welfare recipients. Something's not quite right here. Yeah, it's something's rotten in the state of the Commonwealth of Australia. Uh, as Hamlet would have said had he been alive today. It is private government services, if that makes sense. So things that should be a government service but get into the private hands, law and order, major infrastructure, health, education, welfare now has always failed. But it's more about shoveling public money into private hands as quickly and as efficiently as they can, as they can manage it all the while while kicking the poorer in society. So I think we do need to be suspicious about the Inju card. Definitely a lot more information needs to be released to the Australian public. It has been trialled in several areas across Australia. You mentioned before the Northern Territory. It's also been trialled in the Kimberley region of WA and the Goldfields, Sejuna in South Australia and Wide Bay in Queensland. We also had an interesting development between the government and the mainstream media on this issue. Of course, there had been a large groundswell of support to raise Newstart by $75 a week and it seemed that the groundswell was insurmountable. But then, the government's media outlet provided information directly to the Channel 7 Media Group outlining how 78% of Newstart recipients were breached at least once. Now, there was no background information provided, the figures were misleading and designed to mislead. And that resulted in the headline news on the Morning Sunrise program. New figures have been released showing just how many dull bludgers are trying to take advantage of the welfare system. It's a media message that ran for two days on Channel 7 and then taken up by other media outlets. Then the announcement was made by Scott Morrison that New Start was not going anywhere. Michaelia Cash got into the act and that was the end of the matter. Channel 7 made a very profound apology about it they got natalie barr to make it i don't know why they got natalie barr maybe she was part of the story i didn't see the original story i must admit but i did see the apology natalie barr as far as i know is usually the weather porter on on sunrise but she's a very pleasant comes across as a very nice person and so i suspect that that's part of it to try and soften the seriousness of what they did and any real journalism would have looked at those figures carefully. A lot of people breached their conditions because people missed a meeting because they were at another job interview. People had rung in saying they'd been hospitalised and couldn't get there. I'm sure that there were genuine, you know, they'd written the wrong date in the diary and things like that, which is less excusable, but it's still not rotting the system. Genuine mistakes are genuine mistakes. And it very quickly became apparent that the dull bludger narrative that I think they were going to really run hard with, I think the electorate is a little bit more aware, particularly after robo-debt too, where 
a lot of people got letters saying they owed money to Centrelink who didn't owe money and who couldn't have owed money and who and Centrelink are very loath to explain how this was possible. Trust in government agencies is down. And I think you can't label users or the clients, to use a word I don't like, in a negative way. I don't think that'll work anymore. So the Dole Bludger headline, it's still out there, it still exists, and it provided the perfect cover for Scott Morrison to announce his inaction. It's almost like saying, see, I told you these people are no good, they are unworthy of our support. And that cascaded into the next level for the Prime Minister, where he announced that he was not going to be swayed by unfunded empathy. Scott Morrison was quite a happy, smiley figure during the last election campaign, but now he's reverted to a hard nut that won't give anything away. Could this hardness lead to other problems down the track for the Prime Minister, or is it just a matter of releasing a few key media releases to wash away these bumps in the road? He's clearly playing to his base, and I think that there'll be resonance with some voters. Why should we fund this stuff? And what you know? And I think it's to give some kind of credit where it's due. It's consistent with what we understand of his worldview. The Lord will provide, and if the Lord isn't providing, then you've done something wrong. He said that something along the lines of, the harder you work, the more money you get, so the more you get to keep, talking about his tax cuts. I don't know if anyone's ever worked on a farm mustering sheep or on a building site or clean buildings. I've done all of that, and that is extremely hard work, and it wasn't terribly well paid. That's why I got out of most of it. It was very hard work, and there was better ways I could use uh, my talents. I think that plays to a, a segment of society who they do work hard at their job, and they do get rewarded well for it. It also, I think, taps into that aspirational. If I do that extra overtime, if I do, you know, if I, if I work those extra hours, I get paid more and I get more money, and from there I can work up. And I think that is a part of it too. I don't know that it's a long-term solution though. As John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. And a lot of this is in the long run, you'll get to go into the mansion. You'll get to drive the nice car. I don't think that evidence plays out. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next... We're all being forced to make a choice, so whose side are you really on? In August 2018, on the day Scott Morrison became Prime Minister, he started talking about whose side people are on, and this is what he had to say. There's been a lot of talk this week about whose side people are on, and what Josh and I are here to tell you, as the new generation of Liberal leadership, is we're on your side. That's what matters. We're on your side. That was just after a bruising leadership contest within the Liberal Party, and Morrison's question about whose side he was on seemed to be more about positioning his persona within the electorate. But over the past week, whose side are you on has resurfaced as the question to the Australian public, not as a seemingly innocuous question, but as an aggressive and divisive demand to choose a side, and as a corollary of this, if you're not on our side, you must be against us. It's a little bit of George W. Bush, 
Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. A reminder of John Howard's For All of Us. And it's the typical conservative mantra to seek division within the electorate. The role of the national leader is to seek unity within the community and work towards common goals. But Scott Morrison seems to be doing the opposite. He's asking the Australian public to choose a side. Life is not like a game of football where you get to choose between football teams. It's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher, one of us. I think it really starts there. And it's a, it's a threatening thing too, because if you're not with us, you're against us. And those who are the other are bad people by definition. And those that are the other are different. And it's a very simplistic way of looking at things. You know, and the alliance of politics is, you know, the various strands of influence are complex. The Senate is a place where this is probably most on display, where diametrically opposed parties will work fairly constructively together to hammer out compromises. That division makes things simple to manage, and but it gets very dangerous very, very quickly. I see a slight resurgence of low-grade racism in schools and things, which I hadn't seen for a few years. People are talking about political correctness going mad in slightly greater numbers. Interestingly enough, there's been no talk as far as I've seen on reforming Section 18C of, of the Free Speech Act, but that's just bubbling under the surface. And I'm sure that will come up at some point over the next two or three years. The question, whose side are you on? It's, it's a very loaded question. It's a combination of all those conservative leaders from the past, Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, John Howard. For all of us, whose side are you on? For us or against us? These are questions with loaded subtexts and exclusive interplays. It's for all of us. It's not for them. It's not for the others. It's not for the people that have a worldview that is diametrically opposite to our own perspectives. So it sounds innocuous, but it's a brilliant example of the politics of division. You can see that the Liberal Party is obviously positioning themselves with this element of sloganeering over the next two or three years in the lead up to the next election. In the last session of Parliament last week, there were 84 references to On Your Side and the question, Whose Side Are You On?, featured in 16 Dorothy Dixer questions to the Prime Minister and the other government ministers. This is a framing exercise, but it's very obvious, it's very exclusive, and depending on which way it's answered, it neatly puts people into clear political groupings. I think there's a lot of looking back at the good old days, too. I think Scott Morrison is looking at how did John Howard win elections, trying to recreate the spirit of Howard. I mean, John Howard was very successful, don't get me wrong, but we've moved on from there, too, so it may backfire on him. I'm not going to make a prediction either way. It's a very menacing phrase, too. One of us. It, it's very tribal. You mentioned football earlier, you know, and it's one thing to be a supporter of the Cronulla Sharks. It's another thing to be a supporter of the Roosters. And those divisions are probably all in good fun, really, except when violence erupts, which doesn't happen much in Australia admit, and anymore anyway. But when it gets into working out who is worthy of government service and social acceptance and who is not, it becomes a very dangerous and divisive thing. So in sporting terms, we know that Scott Morrison is the number one ticket holder for the Cronulla Sharks, and that's fine. If he wants to support the Sharks instead of the eastern suburbs, 
That's his business. The Cronulla Sharks is his local team after all. But politically, if the question is, whose side are you on? We need to look at the answer for this. Morrison seems to be on the side of high income earners. He pushed through a massive tax cut for people earning over $200,000 per year, which incidentally makes up 1% of the community. And that fed into his prosperity drive of those hardworking people deserving a tax break, as if no one else in the world works as hard. He's also on the side of people receiving franking tax credits, even when they haven't paid tax in the first place. He's on the side of those religious leaders, the one who have the right to discriminate against other people based on their personal religious beliefs. He's on the side of Angus Taylor. He's on the side of all those MPs that have seemingly been engaged in corrupt behaviour. He's on the side of bankers and miners. This is whose side Scott Morrison is on, and it seems like a very exclusive and prosperous section of Australia. And for someone who wants to be a populist leader in the style of John Howard, you can't do that. Now, we all know that John Howard actually did do that, but he was very good at knowing when to include, knowing when to exclude, knowing who to include, and knowing who to exclude till the end. He learned some very hard lessons in the 1980s and learned from them. He went on Ray Martin or Carrie Ann Kenley at Midday Show and said we should cut Chinese immigration and then claimed that he had plenty of Chinese friends and it wasn't against them. But it was met with outrage, particularly from with his own electorate, which even then had a very strong and vocal Chinese community. And then at the end of his tenure, uh, he lost his seat because uh, he excluded the wrong people in his own seat. Many of these issues seem to be a bit of a smokescreen. It can be sheeted back to not just the time when Scott Morrison became Prime Minister last year, but to when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister in 2015. At that time, it didn't seem like there was any big picture policy agenda, aside from large tax cuts for higher income earners and corporate tax reductions. But it seems like the main purpose of the Liberal Party since that time has been mainly to hold on to government and not, and not do much with it. It doesn't seem to be any overall realistic agenda for this government. And after less than three months since the last election, it's meandering and trying to find a meaning for its existence. And I feel that this is why these issues keep coming up. The whole question about whose side are, are you on? The government sends up flares into the sky to gain the attention of the electorate. But once all the smoke subsides, there's not actually that much to see. I think, too, the other thing is that they're trying to deflect blame from a bad economy. The reason that there's so many people on New Start is that there are no jobs. Walk through the CBD of Sydney or Melbourne or any, nearly any suburban shopping centre, uh, a good proportion of the shops are empty. The economy is tanking. Certainly, lack of government policy or government policy uh, is a large factor of that. in that. And I think if you start to reshape the debate that it's not about how badly the economy is doing, but all these budgets sucking money out of this bad economy, it deflects the blame. Um, I do think, too, you're right, though, that there is a idea of, well, we don't have any plans and we haven't done anything, so let's find a scapegoat. And, and let that scapegoat define itself. You're either with us or against us. So, you know, who's against us? I gave myself to the city. I want to breathe dirty air. I got myself real pretty. I fixed up my hair. 
been a few other issues that captured our attention recently, and this is a continuing theme, but we can't be too sure if the government is seriously considering these issues or whether they've been drawn out of a hat to create a political diversion. But there's a new one on the scene. It's new, but it's also old, and that's nuclear power. There's yet another review being called by the government. This time it's coming from the Minister of Energy, Angus Taylor. Now, there have been many reviews of nuclear energy in Australia, and there have been five serious attempts to create nuclear power stations in Australia between 1952 and 2007. But each time they've reached the same conclusion. Nuclear power is unviable in Australia and it's unrealistic. If nuclear power was ever to be developed in Australia, that time would have been during the 1950s, but that time has passed. So not only is it economically unviable, as it always has been, but it's politically unviable. Which seaside coastal town is going to be the first to welcome a nuclear power plant in its backyard? I mean, Angus Taylor is probably not the person to be putting forward any ideas at the moment. But to start to push nuclear power in a time where renewables are jumping up, and it's the coal industry, and in fact, it's the mining industry that wants uh, nuclear power. Most of the mines are on uh, indigenous land. There's an issue for them there. The other thing is that nuclear power is not efficient. It's more efficient than coal, but it's not terribly efficient. And it's still unsafe. And it might be 99.99% safe. It'll never be 100% safe. If something goes wrong, it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Chernobyl was probably an outlier, but there's been more lesser incidents in that time which have been totally damaging. So the big three events over the past 60 years have been the Three Mile Island incident in the US, Chernobyl in the former Soviet Union, and more recently, Fukushima in Japan. These have been the big ones, but there have been around 100 smaller incidents since 1957, ranging from small fires that have occurred outside the perimeter of some of these nuclear power stations to a whole range of other incidents, including fires within the nuclear reactors, damaged tail rods, leakage of contaminated nuclear water and problems with disposal of nuclear waste. It's not a terribly safe industry, but... Aside from that, essentially this whole process of reviewing nuclear energy, it's a big smokescreen. It's got nothing to do with the desire to create a nuclear energy industry in Australia. The last federal review was in 2006 and that was only 13 years ago. What's changed during this time? Probably not much. There was also a state inquiry in South Australia, which was mainly to look into setting up South Australia as a nuclear waste zone, which I'm sure would have been great for tourism. All of these reviews, they've all arrived at the same conclusions, that nuclear power is not a viable industry in Australia. And another one that comes out at the end of this year, I'm sure that it will arrive at the same conclusions. But this is just a diversion to deflect from the other issues for the government. We're talking about it today. The media has been consumed about it over the past few days. It's just a question of how long can this deflect the attention away from Angus Taylor and all the problems that he's currently having. Like the Adani mine, I think they're going to have trouble funding it, even if all the approvals go through. I think they're going to have trouble maintaining it. And the market, you know, which they love till it works against them, is going to determine that nuclear power is not the way. There may be a future in nuclear power, but I don't think it'll be in day-to-day energy generation. 
I think it'll be in other things. Now, this next issue is radically different to nuclear power. The government wants to double the amount of Australian babies that are breastfed, and it has launched a new $10 million strategy to make it happen. I was actually surprised to hear that only 25% of newborn babies are breastfed to the age of six months, and it's a good public policy to increase this number. But I do get the feeling that this is yet another smokescreen. It's similar to the announcement to review nuclear power. The policy was approved by the Council of Australian Governments back in 2016, so it seems like it's taken a little while to implement this strategy. It's not actually very much money. $10 million is not that much. But again, the government has made a grand announcement about it. Do you think that we might end up seeing more of these sort of announcements in the coming months to cover up all the other problems that the government is facing? Malcolm Turnbull brought in the no jab, no play policy for immunisation. Breastfeeding, though, and Thank God I'm telling you ladies what to think and what to feel. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a complex thing. 25% is it would be nice to have more. There are some women, though, who can't breastfeed, who don't produce enough milk, but have children. Now, should we say, well, you can't have children? Obviously not. There are some women who have to work and who can't breastfeed at work for whatever reason. So you, you make up the formula. There are people who are fanatical about breastfeeding and think that children should only be breastfed, except in extreme situations. But, yeah, I think it's a smoke scene. And, you know, motherhood and looking after babies always plays well. Well, governments always bank up a whole raft of policy announcements, the small, the medium and the large ones. And they keep them in the background and they bring them out at the most convenient time. So if it's a bad news policy, well, they'll release it late on a Sunday Sunday night or just before a public holiday when no one's listening. If it's, if it's a good news policy, well, they'll give it as much airtime as possible. If there's a particular political scandal going on in the background, which seems to be what's happening with Angus Taylor, they'll keep bringing out the good news policies even if it's a small 10 million dollar strategy they'll bank all of these up and they'll keep rolling them out now this is a new term for this government but they've got a lot of problems developing they've got a lot of things going on within the community they've got scandals that are brewing in the background i think that they'll probably keep releasing a a policy announcement each month or a program strategy or, or something new that's been on the back burner for a long long time It won't cost them that much to do. They just put it out to the media and there's your good news story. And then people stop thinking about it. And and people who, you know, have grown up kids and have forgotten or or who don't have kids think, oh, this is a good thing, you know, good on the government. But uh, it's it's hiding something. While we're on the subject of hiding things, there has been a high court challenge in the seat of Kuyong, and the winning candidate there was the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. It's a complaint that's been lodged by one of the losing candidates, independent Oliver Yates, and it's a complaint about the type of signage used in the campaign, which, according to Yates, was designed to mislead and deceive voters from the Mandarin-speaking community. The signage mentioned that to cast a valid vote, you had to vote one for the Liberal Party. 
And the signage used the same official purple colour as the Australian Electoral Commission. How do you think this one is going to play out? I, I think it's going to go down to the subtlety of language. And if, if the right expert witness can be brought in to show that this is actually what it said and its intent... Um, I think more, a bit more worrying for Josh Frydenberg is his uh, citizenship campaign, which was brought in by someone else on the very last day you could uh, apply for these. And I'm thinking here in terms of the courts. I, I, I think it was an attempt to game the system, and I think they cheated. But will the courts see it that way? I, I'm not sure. The Australian Electoral Commission is fairly weak legislatively it's, and its supporting legislation is quite weak as well. So it will be interesting to see what the High Court does here, but with the law being quite weak in this area, it probably means that not much is going to happen there. How can you prove how many Mandarin-speaking people would have changed their vote on the basis of seeing one poster? It's a difficult adjudication to make in this field, but who knows, the High Court can be quite unpredictable. The Section 44 issue for Josh Frydenberg, that will be far more fascinating, but it could be more predictable because it does have all those recent interpretations from over the past two years, and on those occasions, the High Court, they made black-letter law interpretations. The makeup of the High Court is exactly the same as it was two years ago, and it's hard to see why they would make a different interpretation of Section 44 two years on. And it, it, it is a bit complex. He claims that his mother was stateless when she came here, and there is historical precedent for that. However, there is documentation that states that she was a Hungarian citizen. Now, whether he can, or his lawyers, or can demonstrate that that Hungarian citizenship was revoked, and so her first her first citizenship after leaving Hungary or was was Australian. He's trying to frame it in a this is an anti-Semitic attack on a Holocaust victim, and I don't think it is. And I think you've got to be very careful invoking the Holocaust. The main issue is is he a legal citizen, a qualified citizen of the Parliament of Australia? Nobody, I think, thinks that he's a secret agent working to promote Hungarian influence within the parliament. It's not really about Josh, and it wasn't really about Barnabin, and it wasn't really about uh, or any of the others. It, it's about others who might come in after, and we need to know what the law thinks of dual citizenship. Well, the High Court will never deal with the motive issues when it comes to to these sort of factors. The Section 44 does need to be reformed. There's quite a few anomalies within that, but the, the situation is that that's what the law is, that's what the Constitution is. It does get down to interpretive issues within the High Court, but the law is the law, and you can't really bend that. But um, imagine if a Indonesian or a Chinese dual citizen came in or a Russian dual citizen came in, countries that can be hostile to Australian interests and because of their citizenship, worked to bring in their own, own other country's influence. Hungary is a fairly benign country from Australian, although it was only 30 years ago, which is nothing in international terms, that Hungary was considered on the other side, being behind the other Iron Curtain. China and Australia go from being very close friends and quite tense, depending, and, and that can swing day to day sometimes. The United States was considered an, an enemy 80 years ago. 
really, or, or at least a hostile nation. Uh, no, uh, 110 years ago, the US fleet sailed into Sydney Harbour, much like the Chinese fleet sailed in unannounced in 1909, I think. Uh, ships from the US Navy just sailed into Sydney Harbour in a show of aggressive strength. So things can and do change. So you would expect that a sitting member of the parliament in Australia would need to be a citizen of Australia, but based on so many people in the Australian community coming from so many different countries that have got different citizenship rules and regulations, it's essential that Section 44 is amended. But the only problem is that the only way that it can be amended is via a referendum. And we don't like we don't like referendums here. <laughs> Definitely not. And only eight of 44 referenda questions have been passed in Australian history. My solution to the Section 44 citizenship issue would be to make a constitutional amendment where if you are elected to Parliament, you've got 30 days to clear up your citizenship credentials and give up other claims to citizenship yep. of another country and you don't get to sit in parliament until you actually do this yeah that would bypass the whole process of every single candidate needing to go through the unnecessary ordeal of relinquishing other citizenships just in, in the event yep. that they get to win a seat that would also deal with the surprise election of senators the ones that didn't expect to win but didn't clear up their citizenship and then get booted out of parliament it's an anomaly that does need to be cleared up, but it's best to hold a referendum question at the same time as a general election, and we've just missed an opportunity to make the change. One of the exemplary people in this was, uh, surprisingly in a sense, Sam Dastiari, who had to go to the United Nations to get his uh, Iranian citizenship revoked. I don't think he was an Iranian. I think he had... I think he was able to take it, which the current reading of the law is it's not just having the citizenship, it is being able to take it. Now, this is creating all kinds of problems for Jewish members of parliament because uh, any Jewish person is eligible to Israeli citizenship. Even if you don't take it, you may be, and I don't, this hasn't been tested yet, you may be in breach of Section 44. So yeah, these things have to be cleared up somehow. And I think that's a good suggestion. When you get elected, you've got 30 days to present your birth certificate or your citizenship certificate or your revocation of dual citizenship. And in complex things like Das Tayari's having to pay ten or $15,000 and then go to the United Nations. So it took, it took a long time. You'd be able to apply for extensions and maybe even some kind of exemption in extraordinary circumstances. And I, I think that's a, a, a good solution to what I think is going to be an increasing problem over the next 20 years or so. So that's absolutely fantastic. We've resolved one constitutional issue for the government. And I've sent a bill, so, and I've charged half what the lawyers do, so I'll, I'll split that with you when we get it. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. And I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.